Thanks for joining this episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. I'm Nancy Anderson, and I'm here with Linda Descano, Executive Vice President of Red Havas US. Linda, how are you doing today? I'm well, Nancy. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm excited for this one. We've brought together a great cast for the show. Tell us who's joining you and what we're going to talk about. Yes, today we are going to do some navel gazing and step back and reflect on how the predictions we made about the communications landscape in 2022 are actually playing out. And for those you know who are listening in for the first time, you know every year uh, Red Havas publishes an annual Red Sky Predictions Report in which we forecast the 10 fundamental trends we believe will shape the integrated communications and PR landscape in the coming year. Um, Typically our predictions span the digital and social media space, healthcare and technology, the workplace and travel, and each analyzing a communication challenge and opportunity posed by the events of the day, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's, you know, protests around social justice and of course, more recently, some landmark rulings in the U.S. regarding abortion rights and earlier this year, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and everything in between. So on for this episode, uh, we're going to discuss how our predictions are playing out and what are some of the new issues we see bubbling up that communicators and marketers should keep an eye on in the second half of the year heading into 2023. And joining me for our discussion will be Lisa Davidson, who's the Managing Director of Red Havas Health, which is our global offering focused on the health sector. Matt Thomas, who is Executive Director of Corporate Affairs for Red Havas in Australia. Leslie Silliman, an Executive Vice President specializing in corporate communications and reputation management in Red Havas US. And last but not least, James Wright, who is the global CEO of the Red Havas Group, but also serves as global chairman of the Havas PR Global Collective. So should we turn it over to our expert? This sounds like a really good group. I'm really excited to hear this one. And then after that, we're going to bring it back. Our friend Ellen Mallerney Barnes is going to take you through the Red Questionnaire. Can't wait to hear your answers, Linda. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, Nancy. And I will turn it over to our panelists. Perfect. Welcome, everyone. Good morning, a very early morning to Lisa and Leslie, who are joining me in the East Coast of the U.S. Good afternoon, James. You you are joining us from London, where I understand a heat wave is in full swing. And Matt, um, where you are joining us from Melbourne, where I hope you have a nice glass of wine as you unwind and, you know, uh, approach bedtime. Uh, I've got a glass of water, which I'll do for now. Okay. <laughs> um, well, really delighted to, to have you join me for a conversation about how the communications landscape is evolving and what's on the horizon for the second half of 2022 and heading into 2023. You know, James, we've been publishing an annual predictions report for better than a decade. And I'd venture to say we've been pretty successful at isolating the themes and the topics that are shaping the communications environment. So what score would you give us this year? How are we how are we doing with the predictions that we published 
way back when in February. Well, we're six months in, and I think a lot of these um, predictions are coming to the fore in a in a in a big way. So I'd give us a pretty high score. I don't know, nine out of ten. Why not? You know, uh, I think um, we're going to get stuck into a few of them today, but I think that quite a few of them are going to be around for a while. Obviously, kind of having such a, an unpredictable uh, environment that we've been working and living in over the last couple of years, it's um, you might find it a little bit challenging to come up with these predictions, but actually. Some of them, I think, have uh, have actually kind of manifested themselves quite clearly in the last, particularly last six months. Well, and and to that point, as as we begin to dig deep, one in particular, the prediction was we called it corporate purpose or bust. So why don't we start there? Because we actually have been identified purpose as a trend that transcended industries and borders well before the global pandemic and social justice protests erupted in 2020 which put corporate purpose under even greater scrutiny. And, and in this year, in the 2022 prediction, we said we thought 2022 would be the year that companies would need to move beyond making pledges, and really demonstrating tangible progress on how they were living their purpose. But I don't think any of us anticipated the invasion of Ukraine, the landmark ruling in the US clawing back abortion rights, and, and similar issues would really put corporate purpose to the test in an even bigger way and reignite those conversations about what is the role of companies and brands as social and political actors. So Matt, maybe we'll kick it off you know, over to you, go across the pond, so to speak. How, have, how has the conversation of, around purpose evolved in Australia over the past year? I think like a lot of markets, it's been a, a sort of a key driver and it's certainly, you know, a, a major part of the briefs that we would see coming through, particularly um, for, for clients um, as they're really looking to, I suppose, navigate the step past the window dressing of purpose and really looking at how they demonstrate or what I say, actually, you know, walk the walk that they talk around, around purpose. And I think probably one of the the biggest challenges for many of our clients is really actually dig deep and demonstrate on on that. I think we find with some of those major kind of key events that are, are driving driving conversations, particularly in in the you know social sort of space, that the sort of social social debate is moving faster than many particularly large corporations can keep up with. So in terms of you know they they feel a little bit of a, a step behind and a bit reactive in terms of their communication. So there's a real struggle in helping them to navigate around purpose and articulate and, and demonstrate what that actually really meaningfully looks like. And, and importantly, you know, a key part of that is being able to actually to demonstrate and where they, you know, where they really do need support is helping to unpack and understand that. And, and often really the kind of communications function is just one part of that broader discussion and it sits much more strongly at an organizational level. So it's it's really about it's really fundamentally raising the profile of comms um, within organizations from a kind of consultative kind of perspective to demonstrate those that purpose in, in a period of really significant change. Well, I think you touched on a good point about demonstrating because uh, the meaningful brand survey that, you know, uh, Habas conducts, and I think one of the key findings that stuck out to me was only 34% of the people interviewed think companies are being transparent around their purpose. So that that issue of demonstrating and, and building up that, that trust and the transparency is so important. James, you've been 
talking to clients around the world as you've been Australia, Europe, and, and the UK, what are you hearing? Um, and particularly around the influence of employees around company purpose. Yeah, well, I think employees have been a big driver for this shift in corporate purpose. And, and you know, we we obviously wrote those white papers, Linda, that you refer to around uh, moving from pledges to progress. And I think, you know, fundamentally, businesses have now had to sort of, they've been sort of communicating and demonstrating the why. Why do we do corporate purpose? And now that's shifted to how do we do corporate purpose? And so that's what those questions that are being asked by many, many stakeholders, but particularly uh, employees, because the bar and expectation from employees is that the companies that they work for and the companies that they buy from as well have uh, a purpose beyond that profit. And I think that um, purpose has really, I guess, come to the center of that you know, the old sort of triple bottom line, you know, which is, is also all the P's, of course, you know, in terms of you know people, planet and profit, and then purpose now kind of sitting at the, the center of it, you know, and and purpose has become particularly, has, has always been, I think, you know, very important at a time of volatility and unpredictability. And if you take the United States, you know, where I'm based most of the time, there's been so many big issues that's come to the fore, and there's an expectation from employees and other stakeholders that businesses take positions on these big social questions, whether that's equal justice, whether that's gay rights, whether that's abortion. Sometimes it's right for organizations, sometimes it's less so. I mean, you only have to look at, you know, take the state of Florida and the don't say gay bill, and you look at the position that many, many businesses signed on to in terms of actually disagreeing or opposing that bill, you know, from Disney to Starbucks to Pinterest to Target, Nordstrom, lots and lots of businesses signed on for that. And that was an expectation for major employees in that state to take a stance against, um, you know, uh, a bill that that they felt was wrong and, you know, shouldn't have been tabled. So the expectation there has shifted dramatically. I mean, because, you know, I would go back, you know, only a few years ago and, you know, the pressure for, a, for an organization to take a stand on an issue like that just wasn't as strong as it is today. Well, and your comments just remind me of a, a quote that appeared in an, an article that Alan Murray published in Fortune. It was from Michael Chavez of the Duke Corporate Education Program. And he talked about as ambiguity and uncertainty go up, the only thing that really stays constant for business is purpose and values. And they provide the stability. Your strategy goes out the window, but just underscores that purpose really is that anchor that guides and informs business. Leslie, Lisa, from your vantage point, you know, Leslie, you spend so much time working with companies on reputation management. What are you seeing in this space? You know, really to build on what both James and Matt have said, one of the things I think is the most interesting, and, you know, here we sit four or five months later, we could have predicted probably some of what's happened in the world since, you know, since we initially made our report, but certainly not all of it. And to Matt's earlier point, I think companies not only have to show kind of the why and the how to their purpose, but they really have to have what I would call kind of an aptitude to act very quickly. Matt made the point about them feeling a little reactive. And I think because so many of the the world events that have happened to us have such a broad impact on employees, on consumers, on the world at large, they really need to build a framework that is flexible enough to them to be able to pull levers to act, to demonstrate that they are, you know, taking stances that will have a positive impact on their employees, on their stakeholders, on the end user and consumer of their products. It's really just a a very ongoing and fluid process from my vantage point. And I think it goes back to something you raised in a, a byline you wrote on 
the changing evolution of crisis where to some degree, some companies have approached these issues as like we review them once a year, right? And then they go in a crisis manual and if something happens, we go back. But it has to be this always on conversation right. because the the issues are are shifting in the landscape is more dynamic. And so it's getting ahead of it and and being prepared to act, as you said, having that framework. So as something pops, um, and it also reminds me, Matt, of a conversation we had about being purposeful with your purpose and really mm -hmm. having a set of issues. Where do you have the right to engage? Where have you earned a place in the conversation? What's material to your business so you can be able to speak up in a credible way with your employees and all your other audiences. Yeah, and Linda, Lisa, just to build on that, I think that the issues that we're seeing in the geopolitical landscape right now, they transcend all the areas and disciplines in which we work. Um, so we're seeing it not just healthcare, we're seeing it, you know, in consumer goods and in internal comms, the issues about, you know, purpose and inclusivity, they really are everywhere and affect kind of every every aspect of, um, you know, of the industries with which we work. So it's a really, it's an encouraging time, I think, for for communications professionals, just because it is such an ever-changing landscape. And, you know, it's not just about marketing. It's not just about advertising or communications, but it's really about purpose built from the inside out, you know, starting with employees and going outward and, and the companies that are really kind of genuinely invested in, in having a point of view on this on versus like having a point of view as a means to an end are, are the ones that are going to succeed. I love what you just said about purpose from the inside out. I think that might become one of our new catchphrases. <laughs> but let's stay, let's stay on the inside and on the topic of employees because we had another prediction, which we called personnel gets personal, which basically we we talked about that now that employees embrace the power of their voice, they're leveraging their newfound influence not only to advance. DE&I issues internally, but also reshape the world of work as we know it so that it drives greater relevancy, meaning, and value to them personally. So as I like to say, it's, it's no longer about how do I fit my personal life around work, but how does work fit into my life and what mixed employer can you do for me now, right? It's all about me. And I think we're onto something here because a recent study from Manpower Group which to be transparent is one of our clients, um, they surveyed more than 5,000 workers across five countries. And it really underscored that workers want more choice, autonomy, and consideration for their well-being, um, particularly around their mental health. And it's very, what can you do for me? And we will add a link to the survey in our show notes. So like not only is flexibility a must, but it, it's just taking on different forms. And James, this is something that you recently touched on in a podcast you recorded with Provoke Media, um, which we'll also link to in our show notes. So how are you seeing this, the conversation about that intersection of the employee experience and well-being and purpose come to play? Well, I think now we've really sort of you know moved from a workplace being a place you go to to do your work to sort of work working from uh, sort of anywhere and this whole sort of time during the pandemic, we've really had to reimagine what the workplace is and how we interact with it and how we interact with 
our teams and how we how do you build culture in that kind of environment and how do you continue to be successful and so a lot of big businesses as well as small businesses have just become much a lot more open to being flexible about how they approach the individuals that collectively become their their workforce and I think you know that's going to continue for some time. I do think actually perhaps the there's a little bit of a rebalancing now between organizations and their employees as we go back into the office, at least in some kind of hybrid environment for for most businesses, uh, because I think you know perhaps it, it got too over overly flexible and that has then created certain problems for the delivery and the outcomes that those um, businesses are trying to deliver. And we're seeing that with some of our our clients have been have been referencing that. But you know, you know, the world has changed and shifted and and it, and frankly it's changed forever in terms of I think our our approach to what a workplace is and what it does and how we actually create and build culture. So uh, I think no longer is a you know a cookie cutter approach going to work to how you deal with people and how you deal with culture. I think it's very much kind of like on an individual basis and that ability to be as flexible as you can is going to be super, super important as we move to this sort of like, you know, from this great resignation that we had in 2020 and early 21 into this great reimagination of the workplace, which I just think is also quite exciting to think about. Well, actually, if we were to imagine what a workplace of tomorrow would look like, what would that look like? And I think there's a lot of our clients and ourselves as an agency, you know, we've been listening and, and then acting on what we're hearing from how people want to be treated and how you know, people want to work in the future. Yeah, I, I would agree. And what I think about is the changing role of like the officer wherever you go, right? To where it used to be, we came to the office to get work done. And today it feels like we're, we go to the office more for collaboration and inspiration. I like to say on site is the new off site. People are coming in and want to experience because we've demonstrated, right? Work can be done remotely, but it's it's that sense of connectivity and belonging and just the the informal dialogue that happens when you're together. But it's this new experience and how can it be tailored, right, to where I am today? Anyone else have some thoughts on what you're seeing, what you're hearing from clients? Well, I think this is one of those times when it's really great to work at an agency because we get to see so many different perspectives, not only as employees ourselves, but also in, in the ways that our clients are handling these situations. And what I think has been so interesting is how much of a conversation this has become between employees and their employers. And some you know, excellent ideas have come out of these conversations. And so we've learned from, you know, we can say even at our agency, we've learned from every single level of employee ideas that I think have made us a better place to work. And have helped us become a more productive work environment and something that, you know, works for, for our employees. So I hope that continues that piece of it. Yeah. And just from um, working with clients who are in a myriad of environments, whether they're still like all hybrid or they're fully remote, you know, there there's a big mix still going on on the corporate side. But um, in addition to what Leslie and James said, like a great reimagination and we're, we're learning about it. I think it's an opportunity for us to relearn as well as reimagine like the ways in which we personally work and then how we work as a group because it's changed so much over two years and we had such a rapid induction into working remotely you know for a really long time and most everyone did beautifully with that but I think everybody in the process learned probably a lot about themselves about how they work how their schedules work how they do their best work how we work best as a team and that reimagining will also require applying those learnings to ourselves and trying to find a great balance, not just for ourselves, but but for the teams with which we work as 
we emerge or, you know, move into the endemic stage of the pandemic and hopefully it remains that way. <laughs> but I think it's going to require a re-education in a way of, of how we all work. Yeah, to your point, Lisa, like a new muscle, because yeah. it's one thing when everyone is working the same schedule, right, in yep. the same place. And then as we've now adopted more of a work from anywhere in many cases and and many managers or, you know, have distributed teams that could be across one time zone or across yep. four time zones, it's different muscles and it requires a different balancing of how you integrate your work and other times so that you can be accommodating to mm -hmm. people who report to you or your colleagues who are, are working differently. So it, it is an, a, a new muscle and it, at every level of yeah. the organization. One thing that I found that's really quite exciting that's actually come out of that is the way people approach team building now, whereas, you know, once you might have assembled a group of people, you know, within a specific kind of geographic location, and it's something that we're both doing in internally um, within our agency, but also we're seeing commonly with clients is that they're really looking at uh, much more much more easily taking a skills-based approach and really looking at who are the best people within our business to deliver on this solution and, and taking a more agile methodology around kind of team building that um, is really focused around more closely around problem solving and getting the right sort of people mix in there. And I think that's uh, one of the exciting things that's come out of this move away from geographic-based working um, is that it opens up the possibilities for how you build and structure teams and how those teams collaborate and work. These are just some of the topics that we are going to touch on in an upcoming white paper on some new the new waves of employee engagement. So I'll just put a preview in, but by the time this episode is aired, that white paper should be available. So we will, of course, add that to our show notes. Um, Lisa, as our resident guru on the <laughs> panel, when it comes to all things pharma and healthcare, I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier in, in terms of inclusion and, and DE&I. And you know, one of our predictions was around 2022 being the year of big pharma and really the life sciences and pharma sector as a whole, but taking patient centricity to a whole new level, using a human first approach to begin to address issues of inequity and a lack of access that really that came back to the fore as a result of COVID and whether those issues of inequity were race or gender, income, et cetera. And so I'd love to get your take on what programs are you seeing come out in response to this? You know, what's working and what are the lessons that we can take away from, you know, how inequity is being addressed in healthcare and apply it to other industries, other situations. That's a lot to unpack, Linda. <laughs> so I know. Give it a shot. And I okay. know you're up to it. Too. But the exciting part is, like, I think the word you used, guru, I think the exciting part about what's happening now is that everyone, in a way, is a guru for their own healthcare. And that given the overall theme of what we've been talking about, marketing and communications that are really relevant and authentic, that reflect the diversity that we each see in our own lives and communities and in ourselves is what is going to resonate the most with us and in programs that actually speak to us as, as people, as patients, um, and what we're experiencing. And that, that is about everybody. 
So I think that what we're seeing, and I, I think you started probably to see it at, at Con this year, but the wins, I think, show how much healthcare marketing is is shifting from, you know, purely creative to a focus on the patient. And that does mean inclusivity in pharma. I think if you look at what's changed about pharma communications or what's increased from like 2020 to now, we're really starting to see programs that put a modern day, a modern spin on product marketing. Um, we've seen campaigns from companies like GSK that really feature LGBTQ plus community members and stories in their digital films with really resonant product messaging. In 2020, that might've been more of a novelty. In 2022, we're seeing it you know, across the board. Other companies like J&J are also doing LGBTQ plus focused depression awareness campaigns. Companies like Gilead are actually doing some experiential activations, like with Moby Fest Wellness Festival. They're having present, like a presence at New York City's Pride Fest. So things that we also haven't been able to do in the past couple of years because of the pandemic, largely those in-person events are experiencing a bit of a resurgence because they really allow you to go directly to communities, um, you know, and different communities that are impacted by a health condition. But you know. You can actually speak with folks directly in addition to your overall marketing campaigns. So we're starting to see some of that resurge in a good way. So that's one of the one of the trends there. I, th I think you touched on such an, an important thing about you know bringing the different voices right yeah. to the table. And I I also really like what Pfizer has done with publishing their clinical trial diversity report yeah. and their initiative with Columbia University on you know, ways to increase diversity, right? And yep. in clinical trials and J&J &J with the health equity innovation challenge and really basically enlisting communities to, you know, and saying like, we don't have all the answers. So communities work with us, right? Exactly. Help, you know, yeah. help like co-create with us what those solutions could be. And then commitments by many of the big pharma, AstraZeneca for one, about just, commitments to how do we increase representation from BIPOC among their, their leadership ranks. So some very tangible uh, programs, you know, coming out and looking at uh, ways of creating access, equity, and inclusion in lots of different forms. 100%. I think what we saw with, with the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Association of Community Cancer Centers, who've recently issued a call to boost participation rates among racial and ethnic minority populations who've been historically up underrepresented in cancer studies, for instance, is an and perfect example of that as well, Linda. And apart from clinical trials, these the issues basically transcend, you know, everything from the C-suite in pharma companies um, or the C-suite in general, where women are making, I think, increasingly strong showings, but are still underrepresented. Um, it's not just about ads, it's about clinical trial recruitment, it's about C-suite where decisions get made about policies that can affect different stakeholders and also employees. And it's about even building hospitals right now. I saw yesterday an announcement by uh, you know, a noted hospital in, in New England that announced a mission to build a state-of-the-art labor and delivery ward where, quote, every woman and every baby in the region will be treated equally and inclusively. I had never seen that before, but I think that obviously will continue trending. 
I'd agree. We it's a, a similar sort of trend that we're seeing here in the Australian context. And while I tend to only work with our pharma clients and and health clients at a sort of a brand level, one of the big issues that's sort of contextually happening in in Australia at the moment is that we're expecting within the next you know twelve to eighteen months that there'll be a referendum on Indigenous recognition in our constitution, and that's really starting to cause not just brands in the health space, although Aboriginal health here in Australia is, has been a, a, an increasing priority for a number of the big sort of health brands over the last sort of 15 years, but it's it's fundamentally shifting the way organisations look at inclusion, particularly around that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander storytelling here in, here in Australia and and really challenging brands right across the spectrum to question how they meaningfully approach um, inclusion in an Australian context in a way that is inclusive and engaging and purposeful and meaningful and and not just um, window dressing. But in the health space, it's really interesting. We've got a number of clients in that space who are really digging deep into that kind of Indigenous storytelling and using Indigenous modalities to try and communicate with their customers right across the board um, in terms of looking at new, new narrative structures that are, are more open and engaging. That's fascinating. Well, there's going to be so much more for us to talk about in this space of, of healthcare in particular. We may need to come back and do a, you know, a standalone episode just on that. I think we have time to dig into one more prediction. And I felt we touch on the topic of brand experience and coming out of the pandemic, this merging that's happening between experiential and brick and mortar retail in particular to create these omni-channel integrated experiences that can meet consumers where they are physically, virtually, emotionally, and, and so forth. So Leslie, I know this is a world that you have worked quite a bit in. So maybe talk to us about what is happening in the world of brand experience. Yeah, thanks, Linda. This is a, a really fun one and a great one to end on. So um, thank you for the, the opportunity. I mean, when we first looked at, you know, experiential, especially as it relates to retail, a couple of months ago, we predicted, I think correctly, that, you know, the shift in consumer behavior to, to primarily e-commerce throughout the pandemic, you know, really had an impact on brick and mortar retail in particular, but also brought an opportunity. And so this is where the fun comes in. We predicted that brick and mortar retail was going to have to get a lot more creative and really up its game when it came to providing experiences to consumers because they no longer needed to go to a store to purchase something. So then, you know, therein lies the question, what's the purpose of the store? And we've seen so many, you know, outstanding examples of brands really bringing to the fore something brand new for consumers that tapped into what they were looking for. In some cases, um, escapism. In some cases, an opportunity to test run new products that weren't even part of the inventory yet, you know, and to really immerse themselves in brands. So we've seen stores like Nike creating, you know, immersive workshops in their, in their locations. In some cases, brick and mortar aren't even carrying inventory anymore, which is a, a whole nother you know, issue, but they they have an amazing opportunity with things like the metaverse, with co-creation, with influencers, you know, with, with inclusivity to really create a brand new experience that will bring a different level of loyalty from consumers who aren't just coming into a store and making a transaction, but they're coming into a retail location and having an experience that really makes them feel like part of the brand. 
And I think, you know, one other thing that has been so interesting about this is this is not limited to consumer brands by any means. Um, I work a lot in the B2B space and we're, we're getting the same requests as we are creating event experiences for B2B customers to design them to be just like consumer experiences and, you know, to make sure they have that really immersive, exciting, loyal feel to them. So we're seeing it across the board, no matter, no matter the industry, no matter the space. And I think that's a real win-win. It's a win for the brands and it's a win for the target audiences. And I love what you said about brick and mortar. And in fact, the roles are reversed. Brick and mortar is now like building the experience, right? And online has become transactional. And that seems to be just a huge reversal from where it was just two years ago. Matt, I see you nodding um, to that. That'll, that'll be personal reflections. I don't spend a whole lot of time um, <laughs> in either experiential or, or um, consumer, but I, you know, it's kind of a fascinating way to explore it. And I think particularly, you know, kind of touches in a way on that sort of that, that earlier conversation we were having about workspaces and the feel of them and the, and the way being out of your home is now an adventure as opposed to, um, you know, at home, which is often kind of more sort of functional. We've actually got one client who's just redone their office suites using a residential interior designer rather than an industrial interior designer to make it feel more like a high-end home so that it's sort of got that kind of feel to it as opposed to a a more kind of corporate sort of space. And also this trend towards almost hyper-individualism and micro-experiences, right, with bringing Again, it, I think it goes back to that the personnel gets personal. Every everything is about me, right? And how can the experience be tailored? Whether I'm quote unquote working in in an office or I'm shopping, but how do how can everything be accommodating and it's convenient, right? I have control over over the experience and the interaction. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really fascinating thing to watch develop over the next couple of years because you're right, Linda, the other piece of that is that everybody wants an experience that is tailored to them and they're looking for different things out of their shopping experience. Mm-hmm. So it gives brands a real opportunity. And of course, as, as we've talked about along another theme, you know, the people creating these experiences are consumers themselves in, in, in their personal lives as well. So it gives people an opportunity to really create an experience based on what they are living and breathing every day. And I think it's also about shared experiences as well. I think, you know, our basic need for that human to human engagement, whether that's actually in person or online, those shared experiences are super, super important. I think that's the key to building real lasting relationships between brands and and audiences. You know, we've gone from now contactless interactions, the reincarnation of the QR code, unique in-store experiences that can't be replicated online. The online shopper experience has changed and and, and is definitely on the rise with brands embracing a new form of brand experience for customers. And it feels like nothing is off limits now, you know, and there's, it's, it's, it's at times of great change. You see the greatest creativity, you know, we've seen such a huge embracing of shoppable everything shoppable luxury mm-hmm. videos shoppable hotel rooms interactive cooking shows living in the era now of tiktok made me buy it you know it, and then sort of sharing what that was like etc you know so it's 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 a fascinating to see how this will continue to evolve particularly now as people are now going back into the physical space now you know and it was only a a year i think the predictions report we did the year before we talked about this idea of virtual which you know this physical and virtual mm-hmm. coming together and that was has really come to the fore now 
in this new environment as you know we embrace physical and virtual relationships with brands and crave for that kind of unique experience that speaks to me or speaks to the people I want to share it with. Yeah. And just further to that, James, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, in, in the healthcare realm, but any realm, you know, we all are, are consumers of something, whether it's healthcare, goods, you know, everything. But I think that as we as communicators and, and our, our some of our best advice to those creating these experiences for people could be you know, remember to be inclusive when creating those experiences, because we really need the input of those that we're trying to reach so that we can actually help craft communications and experiences, you know, for those folks that are that are resonant for them. So I, I think the inclusivity just, you know, wraps it all up right there. Such a great point, Lisa. Well, we could keep talking about these topics for another hour, but we do need to bring our roundtable to a close. Um James, as you've peeked into the Red Havas crystal ball, um, maybe you could share if there are a one or two takeaways that you would offer to brand communicators and marketers listening in as we head into 2023 planning. Well, I, th- I think that understanding your business's place in the world in terms of beyond just selling a product or a service, what what is what else do you want to be known for and 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 what do you want to stand for? I think that that's become such a, a big part of how brands are marketing themselves and having themselves stand out from the pack. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, we didn't get into it today, but you know how the evolution of the S and ESG has changed for organizations as they really embrace social issues, labor standards, human rights, social dialogue, pay equity, diversity, you know, access to healthcare, all of these kind of parts become, you know, much bigger today than they ever have in terms of the importance to, uh, employees and shareholders and stakeholders alike. And so I think it's there that I think businesses can find themselves uh, their unfair advantage by looking at how can they position themselves in a way that makes them you know, an attractive place to work and an attractive brand that you want to be loyal to in the future. So, I mean, that's probably nothing new, but I just think it's just so much more important today than it has been in in the past. Thank you for that. All of you, thank you so much for joining us. So many great takeaways for us to consider again for some of the the articles and reports we've referenced we will add those to the show notes and i hope all of you will come back at the top of the year and we'll we'll talk about the forecast for 2023 i am ellen mallerney barnes and this is the red questionnaire segment of the podcast where we ask a different agency colleague the same five questions each month Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Linda Descano, an executive vice president who's been at the agency for seven years now. Linda, you are no stranger to this podcast. You often host our roundtables, create our discussion guides, and truly serve as the brains and the brawn behind this entire endeavor each month. So it's a treat to be able to reverse roles a little bit and ask you a few questions. Thank you, Ellen. Shall we start? Yes, please. Linda, how would you describe your job to a child? How would I describe my job to a child? I think I would say I help tell stories about people, places, and things using words, pictures, and music. I love it. That's a great description. Um, what What's your favorite place that you've ever traveled to and why? This is so hard, but I think my all-time favorite place was Machu Picchu in Peru. Not only was the scenery like spectacular, 
but I, I guess when I was there, I experienced such a powerful force of spiritual energy. It was, it was palpable. It gave me such a sense of harmony and peace, something I've never experienced before or, or since then. Um, so it remains, uh, you know, a truly special place in my heart. Ooh, I'll have to add that to my list. Uh, is there a favorite blog or podcast of yours that you could share with us that we have to check out? Well, I'm a total podcast junkie. I listen to probably 10 or 15 podcasts per week. But over the past few months, I think my favorite recently has been The Agent, which is a story about a guy named Jack Barsky, who is the longest surviving known member of the KGB illegals program that operated during the height of the Civil War. And he basically lived in plain sight, if you will, in the U.S. for 10 years before being discovered. And this series talks about his life on both sides of the Atlantic. So if you were a fan of the series, The Americans, like you have to check out this podcast. It, it's truly fantastic. Okay, great intel. This question, this next question is super apropos for you because you're always uh, immersed in the headlines. I know that's how you start your day. But is there a certain headline that's grabbing your attention? Like if we had to read up on anything this month, what would it be and why? So I would recommend um, a book, actually. And it's that the headline is The New Megatrends. And it's by Marion Salzman, who's one of the foremost trend spotters. She's known for coining the phrase metrosexual. And in full transparency, she used to be CEO of uh, Havas PR in North America. So she's a, a dear friend and, and an inspiration. But why I, I recommend this book, why it grabbed my attention is because she is looking at the trends that she believes are going to shape the culture and, and co global commerce for the next 20 years and touches on everything from climate to polarizing politics. And in true Marian fashion, it's as entertaining as it is engrossing, and you will be smarter for it. And I, I think as communicators, it's really important for us to keep a pulse check on what is happening and to learn from people like Marion, who do this so wonderfully and so powerfully. And if nothing else, it prods you to think a little bit differently and helps you bring, I think, a more informed perspective and, and challenge perhaps your own notions um, so that you can bring forward best ideas to the, the brands, the companies, the organizations that we all work with. I'll have to check it out. I believe her last book, I actually got to help edit it when she was still CEO of the agency. So it'll be cool to see what she's been up to more recently. It's amazing. To end, we get to close with the, the most fun question, I think, which is, Linda, what is your guilty pleasure? So besides snacking on Cheetos, which don't <laughs> tell anyone about, um, my guilty pleasure is actually Law and Order reruns in every iteration of Law and Order. And that's generally many days. That's my background music as I work. I don't know. It's just for me, it feels like so comfortable and it's like home cooking. It just gets me in a, a really great space and yeah, I could I could watch and rewatch a gazillion times and never get tired of it. I have never watched Law and Order. Should I start just from the beginning? Oh my gosh. Yes, you must. Yeah. Start with the original and start from the beginning. All right. I'll check it out. Well, thanks for all the good recommendations and I appreciate your time so much. It's good to have you in the hot seat. 
Yes, it is. It's good to be on this side. And thank you so much, Ellen, for for hosting this and for all, all your work to support the podcast. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to rate and review today's show to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas.